Hello and welcome to the latest bonus episode of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from sunny Florida, it is a streamer that I respect very much. You may know him as the Pensword. It's Jacob Comiskey. Good to be here, Stan. I'm so happy to see you. Usually I just watch you stream, but now now we're actually having a proper conversation. I know, it's exciting. I can't wait to dive into the nitty-gritty of Blue Moon and Modern in general to the best magic format, in my totally non-biased opinion. <laughs> so Jacob, aka the Pensword, is an MTGO grinder, primarily playing Blue Moon or Blue-Red Control tr- strategies. You may see them almost every week in the 5-0 deck dumps. Jake, what do you do? Tell us just like a little basic info about yourself so that people who may only know you by your screen name can get to know you a little bit better. Sure, absolutely. So when I'm not playing Magic the Gathering or streaming streaming some Blue Moon, I work as a paraprofessional at a school that's pretty close to where I live. Uh, education, teaching people has always been my passion. I've wanted to work in education since I was like eight years old. And unfortunately, I was stuck doing retail for a very, very long period of time and just recently got my teaching certification. So kind of starting a new life uh, as of late. Um, I really, really enjoy education. And that's kind of the philosophy I take in regards to my streaming as well. I like teaching people about this sort of underdog strategy, the ins and outs of it, to just sort of like make sure that people who are interested in the deck are well-equipped to do well with it. That's something I really, really enjoy doing. Uh, I play a lot of video games, watch a lot of anime. Um, I know, crazy hobbies for somebody that plays (laughs) Magic the Gathering. But what I lack in originality, I make up for in sincerity. I love everything that I do, be it magic, my job, hanging out with my wife, Hannah, and my cat, Morgana. And just that's basically all that I can think of. I'd love to hear it. It's it's a lot. It's a lot of Magic: The Gathering. Don't get me wrong, but I find other ways to keep myself entertained. How long have you been playing Magic? So it'd be about. I started playing sophomore year of college after a uh, poetry slam that I did because that was another thing I was really into was just writing. And my friend Nick, uh, let's just call him Nick. Uh, came up to me with these magic cards. It was like, I discovered this great new game. It's really, really fun. And I was skeptical at first. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And the deck he lent me had a copy of Counterspell in it. Okay. And I countered, I think, his big dumb green creature. And I felt like a god. And from that point on, I was hooked. So I've been playing... Seven years, but I started playing competitively about three years ago. Uh, what do you mean by competitive? Is that exclusive to MTGO or even at yeah. the LGS level? Well, I played a little bit at the LGS, like pre-releases, FNM, stuff like that. But I didn't really research my deck choices and construct my decks competently. Uh, but about three years ago, I'm like, okay, I really, really want to make myself better at this game 
What's something that I can do to actually improve? And I thought, I need to play against better people. And I need to lose a whole lot. And I need to ask myself why I'm losing. And just really, really focus on deck construction, um, my play mistakes, stuff like that. And I heard about Magic the Gathering online, that people play it a bunch. And that the best players in the world tend to practice in that sort of interface. And I thought, you know what? I'll throw my hand into the ring. I'll see how I do. And it was really, really rough at first. Um, But defeat and losing is a really excellent teacher. And eventually I started getting pretty good, if I do say so myself, and learning a lot from my mistakes. And I decided, okay, I want to be the Blue Moon guy. I want to really work on this deck because it has the playstyle I enjoy the most. Let's just put our nose to the grindstone really commit to this, and now we're at the point where we're at right now, and I consider myself a competitive player, pretty competent one, but it was really that decision to play online and to look at my mistakes objectively that I think was my transition from being a casual player to a competitive one. Do you think there are any specific level-up moments that you can identify as, like, once I start started thinking about the game in a certain way, it started to improve my competitive play. Yeah, I think the big level up moment for me, the first one I can think of was just cutting pet cards and trying to make a deck that's efficient and has a consistent game plan instead of doing something radical, crazy, and creative. I was playing cards like Fevered Visions in my Blue Moon decks when I started playing Magic the Gathering online because I had a emotional tie to that card whenever i went to fnms i was like i'm the guy playing the fevered vision stacks i love this card but eventually i decided okay this card's fun and i like it but i have to do something that lines up more with my deck's game plan i gotta be objective i gotta ask myself what cards actually work best and i gotta put those cards in even if i don't enjoy playing with them as much so just cutting the pet cards cutting the cute interactions in favor of just raw efficiency and power level that decision was my first big level up moment uh i think my second one was just sticking to one archetype and not playing a different deck every time results don't go my way or i'm on a losing streak i think a big trap a lot of aspiring magic the gathering players get into is They think, oh, well, I lost with this deck. It must not be good. But you have to be able to develop a skill set towards a specific play pattern. You kind of have to master... How do I put this? You got to keep working at something and not just give up every time things don't work out in your favor. Yeah. Um, I would just flip-flop between different decks. I'd go from, like, Blue Moon to Jeskai Control to storm like just based on me being results oriented and being like i need to win and whenever i didn't win i'd switch decks and not doing that and just playing the deck that i'm most familiar with and have the most fun doing it was hard to make that choice but i think it's something that ultimately paid off and of course you want to be good with a bunch of different strategies and a bunch of different decks But if you have one thing that you're just naturally kind of good at and you enjoy doing it, there's no reason not to just stick with it. If you're playing at, like, the Pro Tour or going to a bunch of GPs, sure, you want to pick the deck that's best for that environment. 
But if you're just grinding on Modo, mm-hmm. it's best to just stick with what you're good at. That's so interesting. And, and I'll probably have a couple questions about that as well, just because it's something I've been thinking about and even talked a bit on the podcast about how, you know, one of my personal goals for 2020 is like trying to be a little bit more focused on a strategy rather than mm-hmm. essentially being guilty of what you're describing, which is yeah. like being results oriented, something doesn't go right. And then I'll just play a new deck and see if that sticks. But yeah, you got to not fall into that trap. Like it feels good to win. Don't get me wrong. But it's important to remember that magic is a game with a lot of variance. So when you lose, you got to be objective about why you lost and be like, did I lose because of a play mistake? Did I lose because the deck was weak? Or did I just get unlucky? And and you got to ask yourself those questions instead of being like, okay, I lost. Time to play Jund or time to play Tron or time to play literally anything else because I've tied negative emotions to this deck. Like you can't afford to think that way. You just lose, you try and learn from the loss, and then you move on. Yeah. So the next thing I'd like to do, which is something that my co-host Dave pioneered in the last bonus episode we did, um, where he interviewed uh, Michael Rapp, who's a Death Shadow aficionado. Mm-hmm. And he introduced this this little feature called Inside the Grinders Studio. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I've got uh, four or five lightning round questions for you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to overthink it. Just kind of the first thing that comes to your mind just to uh, kind of illustrate the type of person and magic player you are. Okay? All right, let's go. Question one, what's your favorite magic card to cast? Uh, Archmage's Charm. It used to be Lightning Bolt, but just Charm so flexible. What is your least favorite magic card to see on the other side of the table? Uh, Veil of Summer, if it's on the stack to fairy. Uh, Time Raveler, if it's on the field. <laughs> what is your favorite matchup to play? I really like playing against Death Shadow. I feel like there's a lot of give and take on both sides of the field. A lot of really, really cool swingy lines. What is your favorite magic slang term? I think it's punt. There's just an elegance to the way that word sounds. I'm a big fan for uh, just the cadence of slang, and I think punt is definitely my favorite piece of it. I punted. It's fun. And if you could pick one, do you have a a favorite magic memory from your career as a player? Yeah, it was actually before I started um, playing competitively, if that counts. I built this really cool Goblin Dark Dwellers boom bust deck before they changed the ruling on split cards. And the first time I played a Dark Dwellers and targeted boom bust in my graveyard and just blew up all their lands and had a 4-4, it was, it was a good feeling. It was really good. Very Splinter Twin-esque, but of course a lot jankier. <laughs> Love it. Thank you for that. So we have to talk about Blue Moon. It's why I brought you on to this episode, because I'm a fellow Blue Moon player, and I really respect the work you've put into this deck, and and not just innovating it, but even getting it out there for other Magic players. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to risk making it a little awkward, because I actually want to... like I remember the specific moment when you came on my radar, Mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was 2018 or so, and it was a Reddit post on the Modern Magic subreddit, I think. I think I know you, the post you're talking about. Yeah. Where you introduced the Blue Moon Project. Yes, yes. Oh, man. So, okay, can I talk about that project for a little oh, bit? Because Yeah, please do. Please do. I think, I think Blue Moon specifically is the 
deck in modern with one of the most unique problems and that since splinter twin got banned there's like six different ways to build a blue red control deck and nobody has any idea which one of these ways is the most optimal and blue moon players at least in my experience haven't really put forth a lot of effort to figure out whether it's most efficient to run something like through the breach or thing in the ice plus a bunch of interaction or like a wizard's build or a delver build or tip like kiki jiki like there's all these different ways you can play blue moon and blue red control but because the pros aren't interested in playing the deck and none of the people playing on moto are actually collecting data for it we're just Mm -hmm. sort of in this blue moon purgatory where people play their favorite builds regardless of how optimal they are so i looked at this and i was like okay i'm frustrated with bouncing back between kiki jiki madcap combo thing in the ice i want data to figure out which one of these builds is the best so my game plan for the blue moon project was to play an absurd amount of matches with each of the archetypes. I'm talking like 200, 300 matches with like Thing in the Ice, Breach, Madcap, just all the things. And I did that for two of them, I believe. I did a big chunk of data for Thing in the Ice, Blue Moon. And I did a bit smaller chunk of data for the Kiki-Jiki builds. And then I realized why this problem is so prevalent in the blue moon community for all the cards they share the different flavors of blue moon play completely different from each other and i cannot play through the breach consistently without getting emotionally exhausted yeah and i feel as if there's a big chunk of the blue moon community that feels the same way about something like madcap experiment or the thing in the ice builds or the kiki jiki builds Like, sure, they might all have Cryptic Command and Lightning Bolts in them, but they play differently enough to attract different kinds of players. So that's why there's all these different flavors of Blue Moon around, and that's why nobody's really gathering data and comparing them. So I sadly did not finish the project just because I could not stomach playing Madcap Experiment or Through the Breach for long periods of time. I just couldn't do it. Like, I wanted to get more data and come up with a definitive answer, but it was burning me out so much playing some of these other flavors of Blue Moon that I just couldn't do it. So I think it's a unique problem the archetype has, and I don't think it's one that I can just solve by myself. I would need, like, a community to be like, okay, who enjoys playing Madcap? You're the Madcap guy. Go play 500 games of Madcap, and then... I gotta trust them to not be biased and record their data correctly and then like come back to us with some spreadsheets so if I am gonna go with the Blue Moon Project again I need like a Justice League of Blue Moon players to go out and collect data like I'll do the thing in the ice build easily because that's the most fun I've just ever had playing Magic but I gotta somehow find somebody who carries that same amount of enjoyment for like Through the Breach or uh, Madcap Experiment or stuff like that. And then once I got the crew together, we might go for part two. But for now, I only got the spreadsheets for Thing in the Ice and a little bit for Kiki Jiki. So one of the things that is interesting to me hearing you say that is, A, I know you've been playing a lot of Through the Breach lately. 
Yeah. And B, I wonder if there's no ideal build of Blue Moon and whether it's one of those decks that because it has all these different axes and avenues and, you know, win cons that you can tap into, whether it kind of becomes a meta-dependent win con that you get to package with all these other interactive control spells. I honestly believe that that's the correct interpretation. Just in some metas through the breach is going to be better and some metas madcap's going to be better and some metas even delver okay maybe not delver maybe delver um the point but that is a good way to put it just what you choose to win with in your blue red control deck might be entirely meta dependent so my goals with the blue moon project might have been idealistic from the get-go but i wanted to see if it's something that could have a solution you know and some of the builds, like the Thing in the Ice build, can kind of tango in about any meta, uh, because that's how they're designed just by default. They have the most flexible, the most interactive spells. But Through the Breach might just be better in some metas, or the clunkiness might not be able to tango in a meta filled with something like Jund or Death Shadow. Like, if you're playing against Thoughtseize decks uh, every other match, then that's probably a meta that's not too friendly to the combo builds. Or if everybody's just trying to goldfish you, maybe you should run the combo builds because that little piece of interaction might help stave off their combo long enough for you to get your combo going. So it might just be meta-dependent is the honest truth, but I'm a sucker for data and I wanted to get some data and figure out, at least for that meta, what the correct deck was. But because the meta is always changing, it might have been a fruitless endeavor from the get-go. But it is a thing that happens... I think specifically with Blue Moon and not with other control decks like Blue-White Control. Because when you build a Blue-White Control deck, there's only X number of spells that you can possibly play. Like, you're going to have to play Path to Exile. You're probably going to have to play Supreme Verdict and Jace. Like, a lot of the choices are already made for you. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people working on that deck. So you got a lot more people figuring out what the optimal spells are. But with Blue Moon... The community's just kind of all over the place. And I was hoping to bring the community together so that we could get a consensus on what the best build would be. But maybe there isn't a best build. Maybe you're right, and it's just meta-dependent. I've been thinking lately about what makes up the core of a Blue Moon deck. Like, where do you start? And one of the things that I see as almost a common denominator among all these decks is just 12 cards. And it's really... Mm -hmm snapcaster mage lightning bolt and opt yes and do you think there are other cards that you know are always going to be consistent for a blue moon deck i think that archmage's charm is quickly ascending to that status uh my impulse is to say something like cryptic command but if you got is it wizards or the delver decks like you're running so low to the ground that cryptic might not even be a good card in those decks uh but archmage's charm is kind of getting to that point. I've been seeing through the breach decks, thing in the ice decks, uh, Kiki Jiki decks, even that are trying to make Archmage's charm works. Um, they're really, really good in the Delver decks because that's sort of where your curve ends is at mm-hmm. three, and it does just enough at three to give you a decent late game. So I think charm is quickly becoming a core of that, but. Yeah, I think what you said is right. It's just Snapcaster Mage, Bolt, and Opt. And from there on, the card choices you make sort of create a decision tree. And where you end up on that tree is what 
version of Blue Moon you're playing. Like, if you want a combo finish, your options are, like, Madcap, Kiki Cheeky, and Breach. If you just want to run more interaction, it's like Delver or Thing in the Ice. And what choices you make from that point onward shows where you're going to end up. So I know you're playing through the Breach a lot lately. Is mm-hmm. that just a concession to this, like, Primeval Titan meta? Is there yeah. other conditions in the meta that I th- that you think maybe makes through the Breach such a good choice right now for Blue Moon players? I think um, a lot of decks right now in Modern are just trying to goldfish each other. The obvious example is something like the Primeval Titan deck, sure. But Storm's kind of making a resurgence. Ad Nauseam's being played a lot, too, uh, for some reason. I'm not big, big brain enough to understand why. It's probably a good meta choice. But because a lot of decks are trying to goldfish each other and not run a whole lot of interaction, it was like I was saying earlier, the little amount of interaction you run in through the breach buys you enough time to get to turn five and combo off. But I think even more than just like the meta lining up really, really well to having a 15-15 that blows up six lands in a primeval titan meta is the addition of Omen of the Sea just allowing you to not only play completely at instant speed in that deck, but also dig way deeper for your combo than you ever could have before. I think being able to preordain, you know, whenever you want and look for whatever piece of the combo you're missing and also scry later on mm-hmm. to either finish off your opponent after you threw Emrakul at him or to look for the piece, the piece of the combo you're missing... It's just a great way to use your mana on the turns where your opponent's too afraid afraid to do anything because you're representing Cryptic. You can be like, okay, you didn't do anything. I guess I'll scry too. It's like, oh, look, through the breaches on top. We're good to go next turn. So Omen of the Sea has been a really interesting inclusion for that deck. But it might not just be Omen of the Sea. It's probably just because everybody's trying to goldfish each other now. There are, of course, some exceptions to that, being Death Shadow and Jund specifically. But Jund runs so many cards like Fatal Push and Renin Six and Tarmogoyf cards that just barely have a text box when you're getting ready to throw Emrakul at mm-hmm. your opponent that those tend to be pretty good matchups anyway. Uh, Death Shadow is probably the worst matchup for Through the Breach right now, but there's a lot of stuff that it's just really, really favored against. The big problem with, with Through the Breach, though is that that deck just wants to lose to itself really, really badly because your combos, your combo pieces don't actually do anything Mm -hmm. uh, by themselves. Through the Breach is like a deck where a bunch of your cards are like noisy kids running into each other and trying to yell and scream at each other. And you got cards like Opt and Omen of the Sea that are just like trying to keep everything together long enough for things to work out. Like the deck, more so than any other deck in Modern I've played, is just at ends with itself. And it creates leagues where you either run super, super hot or just 2-3 or 1-4 and the deck feels unplayable. And because of that, it's really, really emotionally taxing. So while I would say it's well-positioned in this meta, I will also say that's not for everybody. Because those games where your opening hand is just like two lands, three emeralds, a through the breach, and an opt, just make you think, yeah, this deck might not be good. But then you get the the hands where everything works out and it's fine. So 
the biggest enemy through the breach has in this meta is the same as before omen of the sea was printed it's just itself mm-hmm. through the breach's biggest enemy is the way the deck unfortunately has to be constructed but when it's hot it's really hot and it feels pretty unbeatable i know that i believe it was the last modern league you finished was it top five on the leaderboard yes um i was in third i believe i got really busy during the last two weeks so i wasn't able to retain my second place position but i was it was the best i think i've ever done on the leaderboard and Currently, I'm trying to claw my way back up to that spot, but I can only play like two leagues a day, unfortunately. Just... Wow, there's so much to unpack there. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. For starters, um, you reached that you know number three spot playing basically exclusively Blue Moon in yeah. Modern, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. And it was mostly with the Thing in the Ice version at that point still. Yes, what was that like? Like, what, what do you think are some of the skills that go into being successful in the leagues and like climbing up the leaderboard that maybe other grinders who, you know, want to be more successful online could learn from? Oh, that's a lot to think about. Um, I'd have to say that what was going through my head during that season specifically is there were a couple of things. I think the first thing was just a sense of fun with the deck. Like I really, really enjoyed the sort of gameplay loops that Archmage's Charm and Mystic Sanctuary created with the deck now. Like, I think that might've been the most fun I've had playing Modern is after they banned Faithless Looting. Because once they banned Faithless Looting, Modern became a lot more interactive and counter spells could actually do something. So cards like Archmage's Charm really, really got to shine so yeah. I looked at that and I thought, you know, everybody's playing Stoneforge Mystic decks. Everybody's trying to interact with each other. This is, of course, before like people really started picking up on Oko and Vale of Summer and stuff. But I'm like, this is probably the time for me to be trying to play Control, right? And trying to play Interactive Magic. And it worked. Just I got to steal Batter Skull tokens with Archmage's Charm. I got to like in-step draw two cards. I got to create fun little loops with mystic sanctuary where i'd like fetch up a mystic sanctuary put charm back on top play opt cast charm draw two cards uh i got to flip snap caster mages back to my hand with thing in the ice it was just fun magic and because the magic was fun and powerful i was playing a lot more uh because i hadn't started teaching yet Mm -hmm. so i actually had a lot more time to play So the games were interactive, the games were fun, and I had a lot more time were all factors that led to me being higher up on the leaderboard. I I also think that just Blue Moon is an inherently powerful control deck uh, because unlike stuff like Blue-White Control, you're able to actually be proactive and finish games when you need to finish your games. Uh, I've played leagues with Blue-White Control and they last like two and a half hours three hours the beauty of a deck like blue moon is there's just enough control and on the stacked interaction to scratch that control itch but because your win condition is either a combo or a card like thing in the ice you either win really quickly or lose really quickly so it doesn't waste your time 
I guess, is the main thing I'm trying to say. You're not trying to attack your opponent with a Celestial Colonnade six times or crush their spirit by sticking three different Planeswalkers on the ground. You like Games typically last between three to six turns. And if they go any longer than that, you probably just win by default because your late game is so good with Mystic Sanctuary and Archmage's Charm. So I think the deck got really, really powerful after Modern Horizons. And in conjunction with Faithless Looting getting banned and subsequently a lot of our bad matchups just not existing anymore, that might have been what led to my success. But from a purely emotional standpoint, it was that the deck was just so much fun to play. You know, it was powerful. It was fun. It was everything I ever wanted in Modern. But I kind of had to wait until Hogak got banned, until Looting got banned, until all that stuff. Like, I was still winning games at that point, but the magic itself was exhausting. Like, playing against Hogak was just not fun. Uh, Stoneforge Mystic and even Oko was a lot funner to play against. So that led to me wanting to play more. (laughs) Something you mentioned is that nowadays you only have time to play about two leagues a day. Do you think being able to grind out multiple leagues throughout a day is kind of necessary to climb that leaderboard? Unfortunately, yes. Not because... How do I put this? It's because there's so much variance in Magic. You know what I mean? Like, you can have the most powerful deck in the meta and be a complete master of it. You could be like playing at an MPL level and still three to a league just Mm -hmm. because, you know, your two openers didn't have lands in them and you physically couldn't keep them or you got paired up against your one matchup that you have like a 30% win rate against. Like there's just so much variance that goes into magic. That's really, really hard to five Oh, but you gotta be able to view it as what it is. And when you end up 3-2-ing or 4-1-ing, you gotta be like, okay, I guess I just gotta play another league if I want to climb that leaderboard. So it's an issue of how much time you have. There's um, periods where I come home from work, I go for a league, and I like 3-2 twice, or I 4-1 and I 3-2. And I want to play more to climb that leaderboard, but I'm like, I have to work in the morning, I have to interact with my wife, I have to like feed my cat. I have to maintain my social links. Yeah. So I reasonably probably can't get as far as, you know, maybe some other people who are also trying to grind this leaderboard because the architecture of their life is different than mine. And their architecture um, might be more conducive to grinding out leagues. It might not be. But you just really got to ask yourself, A, how good am I with this deck? how much fun do I actually have playing the deck because if you don't have fun playing it you're going to get burnt out and that's going to reflect on your performance right Mm -hmm. and just asking yourself if you got a powerful deck if you got a deck you enjoy playing and how much free time you have like these are all things you got to ask yourself if you want to grind Magic the Gathering and you have to be realistic about it otherwise you're going to get burned out and your results are not going to reflect where you want to be does that make any sense totally yeah so you mentioned the banding of faithless looting which for me was actually a dark day i'm sorry well i loved playing is it phoenix and and if i recall correctly you did not i did not that deck was very very powerful but the lines you have to take to be successful with it it's 
how do I... There's obviously a cerebral aspect to uh, Is It Phoenix because you have to sequence your cantrips uh, very, very well. And that's an incredibly difficult aspect of the game. But it's not a part of the game that I find too enjoyable. I, of course, like it because I have Serum Visions and Opt in most of my decks. But that's like the bread and butter of what that deck is. I like interacting with your opponent on the stack. I like there to be some sort of controlling element. And is it Phoenix sort of straddled the line between being an aggro deck and a tempo deck? Whereas the decks I more or less enjoy are straddling the line between a tempo deck and a control deck. Uh Right? There's that distinction. It just played too aggressively to me. And while that was a powerful thing to do at the time, it was... Again, not something that I enjoyed, so when I played Leagues with it, I quickly got burnt out. Because uh, when it came out, when Ross Miriam did his um, first couple of successful runs with the deck, I was, of course, curious. You know, cool new blue-red deck on the block. I, of course, want to try it out. And I'd be, like, 4 one with the deck, and I'd be like, I'm not playing this deck anymore. Like, it's yeah. powerful, but I just don't enjoy it. And for a lot of Magic players... Winning is enough of a rush where they can justify playing whatever deck. And I envy those people, but I'm definitely not one of them. <laughs> like, yeah, I was winning a little bit with Izzet Phoenix, but it just, it didn't encapsulate what drew me to the game in the first place. Which, again, was that blue deck that my friend brought to college. You know, I needed something with, you know, a control element to it. <laughs> I get that. I love counterspells. And original counterspell is actually one of my favorite magic cards of all time. And I was Same. I was really disappointed when we didn't get it in Modern Horizons. Because everyone and their mom thought we were finally getting counterspell. Man, the Instead, hype we got our changes charm. Yeah, it's it's bittersweet, right? Because the hype behind counterspell being printed in that set was so high. And when <laughs> When the spoiler season was complete and there were no counter spells, I, I for one was pretty disappointed. Mm-hmm. But I also had hope because I just saw Archmage's Charm and I was like, okay, that card does everything that I could possibly want in an interactive spell. So as long as it doesn't stink and I can slot it into, you know, a decent blue red control deck, you know, maybe that'll be enough to numb the pain of not having counter spell legal in this format for some reason. And it eventually was fine, but... What do you think Modern would be like if we had Counterspell? You know, I actually don't think it would be that different. I think people would, of course, run it because the hype of having Counterspell printed would just inspire a lot of people to jump on Moto again, slot that card into their deck. But I think Magic players are really, really smart. And they would make counter decisions in the meta to combat the sudden blooming of control decks. Kind of like how when Stoneforge Mystic was unbanned, all the control players were packing like two to three spell snares in their main deck. Except with counter spell, people would be playing Cavern of Souls and Teferi and Veil of Summer. We'd probably get a couple of decks with main deck Veil of Summer. And that's just not the kind of magic that I really enjoy playing. I think a bunch of those cards are huge design mistakes that invalidate an entire archetype of the game. So I honestly feel like if Counterspell got printed, for a short period of time at least, Modern would be excruciating for me to play against. I'm sure I could run something like Aether Gust if 
counteract all the Cavern of Souls Primeval tight index that would crop up as a result of that. But I don't even know if the card is that much better than Deprive. Right. Like, it's a bit more down the middle, because with a card like Deprive, that card is almost counterspell when you have Mystic Sanctuary legal in the format, except it has much higher highs and much lower lows. Whereas Counterspell is just like a generically good card. And I hope we get to talk about Deprive Mystic Sanctuary a little bit, because that is just... It's absolute gas, and it's almost like having Counterspell in the format, but not really. It's like having Counterspell in a, in a better Isochron Scepter. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because with Isochron Scepter, you run the risk of two for one in yourself. Mm-hmm. But because lands are notoriously difficult to interact with... Uh, you just pick up, you counter their spell, pick up your Mystic Sanctuary, play it again, and congrats, you have a soft lock, just yeah. like that. And what a cool thing to have in your late game. A lot of people were calling for, like, Mystic Sanctuary to get banned once people started realizing how good it was. And all I could think is, like, no, Control's been terrible for a while, just give us this. Yeah. Just, just please, it's, just give us this one card. <laughs> I love that lock and a lot of my blue moon testing and like my own personal innovations and experimentations have really been around having three deprive and, you know, like eight fetches. And I think three mystic sanctuary, two to three mystic sanctuaries is kind of like its own little sub package next to the snapcaster opt bolt package we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to hear that you're a fan of it too, though. I, I don't think you're playing it in breach. Oh god, no, because the thing about Breach is you really, really want to get to 5 mana so that you can slam spaghetti into your opponent's face. And picking up a land is really, really counterintuitive to that. But in the decks like uh, Thing in the Ice, Blue Moon, or Delver, you know, missing a land drop's not that big of a deal because you're kind of low to the ground anyway to begin with. And... So you can you can afford in the early games to pick up a land if it means your opponent not resolving a Liliana of the Veil or a Tarmogoyf or some other spell that just destroys what you're trying to do. So, yeah, it works a little bit better in the non-combo builds, I would say, because with Thing in the Ice, uh, Blue Moon specifically, you have all these little packages that synergize with each other. You got the Snapcaster Mage package, of course, you got the Deprived Mystic Sanctuary package. You got the Thing in the Ice package. And all of them sort of work together to create situations that are really, really difficult for your opponent to navigate. And a deck like Breach is a lot more simple. You're just trying to get to five mana, find your combo pieces, and annihilate six. So mm-hmm. you don't need those packages as much. If that makes any sense. Totally. I want to uh, take a little trip down memory lane with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the far-off year of 2019. <laughs> it feels like ages ago. It really does. I want to list oh, some of the time. Yeah, it, it was a good time, I think, in retrospect, depending <laughs> on who you ask. And I want to read off some of the cards that we, as Blue Moon players, got last year. Mm-hmm. Force of Negation. Oof. Archmage's Charm. Mystic Sanctuary. Mystical Dispute. Brazen Borrower. Royal Scions. Mm-hmm. Honestly, there may be more that I'm forgetting. Magmatic Sinkhole, my dude. That card is nuts. (laughs) How much did 2019, especially after the banning of Faithless Looting, help elevate Blue Moon? 
Uh, this deck is now on the radar because of those new cards, because the power creep in Modern specifically has been so absurd that if Blue Moon didn't get some of that love as well, we probably wouldn't be existing from a competitive standpoint. Uh, they just, it was like Blue Moon Horizons. It really was, because they just printed all these incredible interactive spells that almost exclusively could go in our deck, like, yeah, Blue-White Control tried running Archmage's Charm for a little bit, and it was cute, uh, but they have to run Field of Ruin to deal with the lands, so that, of course, created some strains in their mana base, so they couldn't effectively run it. Uh, but we get to run Blood Moon, so that's our land hate, kind of, so we had enough islands to cast Archmage's Charm. I, I mean, every blue deck is probably running Force of Negation at that point. Like, that card's just generically good, but a card like Magmatic Sinkhole, we run so many one-mana cantrips, that's really easy to fill up our graveyard, so we're almost always able to get that online by turn three. And in the late game, it's the best removal spell in the format, because you just Mm -hmm. delve away a couple of fetch lands and kill whatever's bothering you for one mana. And because we don't run Path to Exile, being able to have a spell in your deck that kills creatures like Thought Not Seer and Tarmogoyf. It, it's just gas. And it even costs one mana, which is great when you're trying to flip Thing in the Ice. Thing in the Ice loves one mana spells. It, you can only really get it online in the late game, but that's fine. Like, it's still not something I would have guessed that they would have printed. Yeah. Like, spoiler season was such a fun time for me. Uh, just because they kept blowing me away. Like, yeah, the opener with Force of Negation, I'm like, that's pretty good, but every blue deck's gonna be running it. Like, we'll add it to the 75, but there's nothing for us yet. Mm-hmm. And then Charm was spoiled, I'm like, okay, this is the moment. Yeah. If they don't print anything else, I'm fine. And then they finished it off with Sinkhole, and I'm like, this deck might actually be good now. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I don't have to run Electrolyze anymore. How much do you love Omen of the Sea? And, and do you see yourself playing this in any other shells beyond the Through the Breach Blue Moon version? I think it's really, really good if you're digging for combo pieces. But unfortunately, I can't really see it working in something like Kiki Jiki. Just because you're already running so many non... Um, what's the word I'm thinking of? You're running so many creatures... And, like, spells that can't be flashback with Snapcaster. That if you run Omen of the Sea in favor of something like Serum Visions, Snapcaster Mage is just going to be a 2-1 Ambush Viper a lot of the yeah. time. Like, there's a lot of deck restrictions in Kiki-Jiki, I feel, because the combo package is... I don't want to say it's bigger. It might be bigger. It might be 9 cards in some builds, maybe 10. But none of those cards can be flashback. Like, Pestermite, Deceiver, Exarch, Kiki-Jiki... These are all cards that don't really work super well with Snapcaster Mage. Whereas with Through the Breach, you can at least put it back on top with Mystic Sanctuary if Jund makes you discard it, or flash it back with Snapcaster Mage. So you can afford to run a spell like Omen of the Sea that you can't flash back, doesn't really work well with Snappy Boy. The one other build of Blue Moon I could see Omen of the Sea being run in is Madcap Experiment, either with Platinum Imperion or uh, Platinum Angel. But spoilers i don't think those builds are very very good Mm -hmm. uh they don't set you up to win the game as well as something like emiracle so while you could theoretically use omen of the sea in those decks to find your combo pieces you could also just be playing a better build of blue moon one that's more consistent one that 
has a combo payoff that just seals the deal for the most part. So it's possible. Maybe they print some sort of new combos in the future that Omen of the Sea really, really slots well into. But in a build like Thing in the Ice, uh, Delver, I, I can't justify it. You kind of need instants and sorceries in those builds. One card that I think is still a little bit unexplored is Brineborn Cutthroat. Mm, yes. and, and, and I like the interaction between those two cards because Brineborn is just like a four for four replacement for Thing in the Ice. At least mm-hmm. Brineborn triggers off of Omen of the Sea in a way that Thing in the Ice you know, simply does not. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it having Flash will trigger your Brineborn Cutthroats really, really well. I could see running... Uh, Omen over something like Serum Visions in the decks that run Brineborn Cutthroat. Uh, there was a gentleman in our Discord who has been testing a Kiki-Jiki build with Brineborn Cutthroat. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's explored Omen of the Sea at all, but it could work. I want to talk a little bit about Brazen Borrower. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I know you've been playing V-Click and you're through the Breach decks. And I think in that shell, it makes a lot of sense to play Vendillion Click since... You know, if you have Emrakul in your hand and know through the breach, it feels so bad. Yes. Um, or or two Emrakuls for that matter, or like a that... Platinum Empyrean, etc. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you see V-Click getting much play outside of that type of shell? Or is Borrower just like, you know, the end-all be-all replacement outside of those like combo-centric uh, strategies? I think that it's not a replacement for V-Click. I think the cards perform... uh, They look very, very similar on a surface level, right? Like, they're 3-1 flash flying threats. Um, That also interact somehow. Yes, that also interacts somehow. Uh, The key is how they interact. I think that Borrower exists mostly for the tempo versions of Blue-Red Control and for some sort of combo deck. Uh, V-Click might just be better. Because... Mm -hmm. The trepidation you have whenever you're playing a combo version of uh, Blue Moon is, okay, do they have some way to interact with my combo? I need to go see if the coast is clear. And Vendillion Click is very, very good at that, as well as just getting rid of redundant pieces of the combo in your hand. Whereas something like Brazen Borrower, you're trying to just kind of tempo your opponent out in those sort of decks, uh, Petty Theft is an instant or a sorcery, which lines up really, really well with Thing in the Ice. It's not so good in Delver, because when you reveal it off the top, it's still unfortunately a creature, so it can't flip your Delvers. But if you have something like a young Pyromancer in your Delver deck, you'll be able to get a 1-1 token by casting Petty Theft. So, while the cards look very similar, I don't think Borrower is a straight-up replacement for Vendillion Click in a lot of shells. You just have to ask yourself, am I trying to win with a combo, or am I trying to tempo my opponent out? Yeah. And if you're trying to tempo them out, Brazen Borrower, more times than not, is the correct choice. But if you're running a combo deck, V-Click just provides so much utility that it makes sense to run that over Borrower, I feel. There's probably a lot more nuance to that, but that's the Reader's Digest uh, version of my opinions on those cards. They're both incredibly powerful. They just yeah. belong in different shells. How often do you encounter Blue Moon Mirrors online? Uh, way more than I did at the start of 2019, which warms my heart. I get a lot of people messaging me before games being like, you! And I'm like, me! Yeah! 
and then they say something like you're the reason i'm playing this deck and it melts my heart oh wow like, i i feel really really good about that and it's the blue moon mirrors are so fun because every single decision just really has a lot of weight and consequence because you're likely running similar power level cards uh, sometimes Blue Moon Mirrors, it's whoever resolves a cryptic command successfully first. That will sort of dictate the flow of the game. Or whoever resolves a flash threat that they're able to protect. Uh, they feel over a lot quicker than I think other control mirrors might. Because your catch-up tools in blue-red aren't as good. So it's all about just like keeping the tempo and then preserving that. Unless you're doing combo mirror matches, which can sometimes feel very, very swingy. I was doing a Through the Breach mirror match a couple of days ago, where my opponent had uh, one card left in their hand after a counter war, and I'm like, okay, even if I lose this counter war, it's correct for me to go for it, because from a purely statistical stance, they would have to top deck the other half of their combo to win, and then they did. Yeah, And I wasn't even mad, because it was such an incredible sequence of plays that led to that person winning so the combo mirror matches are incredibly swingy and fun and you gotta take really really big risks whereas the tempo mirror matches are just sort of like players power up for like eight turns before somebody makes a move and then the pace of the game is dictated on whether that move lands or not and if it does good luck catching up so they're very, very fun mirrors to play. It's some of the most fun I've had playing Magic is playing tempo builds against each other. And some of the most heartbreaking losses have been uh, the combo games that I've played where I'm just like, okay, I have to be extremely unlucky to lose this. And then it happens, but I also feel good for the person because they're playing the funnest deck in modern. Probably. That's what makes you a good teacher. I hope. Um, I hope so. When you watch other people play Blue Moon, whether it's against you or, you know, maybe even streamers or whatever, mm-hmm. are there like general mistakes or best practices that you observe that you think people could learn from uh, from someone who plays a lot of Blue Moon that may be unintuitive at first? Yeah, I think a lot of people switch from other control decks to Blue Moon depending on the ebb and flow of the meta. And the thing about other control decks, specifically blue-white control, five-color Niv-Mizzet, stuff like that, is your big power plays involve you tapping out. Uh, You tap out for a Teferi or a Jace or a Niv-Mizzet, and that sort of dictates the pace of the game. So I think a lot of control players jump into Blue Moon thinking, oh, I have a thing in the ice in my hand on turn two. I need to tap out to play that because that's how I'm going to win. Or I have a Blood Moon against my Jund opponent. I should play that on turn three. But the way most Blue Moon decks are configured is they allow you to have a wide assortment of options at all stages of the game. So it might not be ideal to play your thing in the ice on turn two or your Blood Moon on turn three. You might It might behoove you to sort of see what your opponent does. Maybe you play an Archmage's Charm on their instep instead playing the blood moon because it'll find you more blue sources so when you play that blood moon you're not able to lock yourself out of the game as easy maybe uh your opponent could have a fatal push or some way to interact with your thing in the ice and you don't want to give them that tempo by playing it on turn two but 
I just see a lot of people feeding their thing in the ices to fatal pushes and playing their blood moons and then get blown out when their opponent plays a basic and then cast like Bloodbraid Elf or something. And it's hard to watch. So I think the best uh, piece of advice I can give uh, new Blue Moon players is just because you have a threat in your hand or a powerful card, don't feel compelled to play that on your main phase. A big chunk of the Blue Moon suite of interactive spells encourage you to just play at instant speed. Mm-hmm. When you're absolutely certain that playing that thing in the ice will benefit you, go for it. Until then, just really assess the context of the situation and don't get into automatic play patterns that are the result of playing other control decks because it's a whole different ball game here. Yeah. You don't got to tap out for your Teferi or your Niv-Mizzet or anything here. You can you can take your time. And then once you successfully resolve your threat, then you can sort of like switch into overdrive and try to close that game out quickly. Yeah, whenever I play the Thing in the Ice version, one of my personal rules of thumb is if I have a Thing in the Ice on turn two, I either only cast it if I have literally no other instant speed interaction, so there's mm-hmm. no reason for me, you know, not to, mm-hmm. or I just hold it until I can like double spell and have a thing in the ice and hold up interaction for, you know, uh, my opponent during my turn or their turn. So like oftentimes it almost feels like a four mana spell for that reason. Yes, exactly. And the power level of thing in the ice makes it so that treating it like a four mana spell is not even that big of an issue because when that thing flips oh baby it flips and it is worth the wait and you can wait for it i think that's a really really good way to view that card um people have a very very well new magic players have a very very i feel uh black and white view of how they should play their cards but you gotta view these things in the larger context and just Set yourself up for play patterns that don't result you and you getting blown out. Yeah, Don't blow yourself out because your catch-up tools are not great. Your catch-up tools are like magmatic sinkhole and that's it. (laughs) So don't put yourself in a position where you get blown out, Mm -hmm. I guess would be the best piece of advice I could give. Because if it can happen, it likely will. And that's not always the case. Sometimes you got to take risks, but... If your opponent can sense that you're playing Blue Moon, they're likely sandbagging a basic. Like, just keep it in mind. Um, I would be curious to hear a little bit about your philosophy and method toward both testing and innovating the deck. Because one thing that you do that I find really interesting and impressive is you're willing to, you know, almost use any tool to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So something that I remember you did a couple months ago was you started playing Spreading Seas. Yes. Because Etron was such a scourge online. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of Blue Moon players, they may have been unintuitive because similar to Omen of the Sea, it like seemingly triggers nothing beyond just like giving you a little bit of extra land hate and a cantrip. Mm-hmm. What's your approach to like pulling in new cards? How often do you start looking for these unusual solutions to, to problems that people might experience in a meta? Well, I feel like my process has just... You have to have the mentality that you can be wrong about things, I suppose. And you have to be willing to experiment and take risks, even if it results in frustrating play patterns in leagues that are somewhat miserable. Like, 
it's an excruciating process testing out new cards to solve these sort of problems because you honestly don't know how it's going to go until you get the ball rolling in place of games of magic. Uh, but it's better than doing nothing and waiting for somebody else to solve your problem. And there's not a whole lot of players in the Blue Moon community. So if you want a problem, you can't wait for some pro to go and solve it for you. You got to be the one to test those new cards. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, oh, well, at least you tried. You have to have the mentality. You have to be able to forgive yourself for trying out new ideas. And I feel like a lot of Magic players are just like, okay, I'll just wait for something to get banned or I'll wait for the meta to shift. And if you want to experiment, if you want to innovate, you have to be okay with taking matters into your own hands and being wrong. The spreading seas thing in response to e-tron, it worked out great for me for a very, very long time. Eventually I ended up dropping that build because spreading seas was just dead against a lot of different um, decks. But it did solve the problem of e-tron, which is what my goal was um, when I made that choice. So in that respect, it was very, very satisfying. But for every story like that, there's a bunch of other failures, a bunch of other <laughs> wacky ideas that don't work out. And instead of thinking something like, oh, I'm a terrible magic player, I'm a fool for thinking, you know, this could work, whatever. You got to be like, okay, that didn't work. Let's move on. Let's explore the card pool and see if there are cards I can put in my deck that solve this problem without taking away the deck's competitive advantage. So it's all about just being patient with yourself and trying new things and taking matters into your own hands, I feel. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's great advice. It, it reminds me a little bit of kind of like the mindset of just brewing in general, where you mm -hmm. kind of see the, the landscape in front of you and then try to either find a way to navigate that landscape for success or seeing it from like a tool's perspective. And it's like, here, I have these really powerful cards and now I just need to find the right shell to, to make them work. Yes. And if the tools don't exist um, to solve an issue that you currently have, the next piece of advice I'd give is just be okay with that being a bad matchup. Like, mm -hmm. I feel a lot of... I feel like, especially with Modern, there's this bizarrely romanticized idea about having a deck that's good against everything. And even in, like, the most uh, homogenized metas, those decks don't exist. You will not have a Modern deck that can beat everything. You have to be okay with just some matchups being very, very difficult. Like, maybe not even necessarily unwinnable, and just be like, okay, these colors don't have the tools to answer this problem. How do I deal with that uh, emotionally? You know, do I switch to a different deck because I'm just sick of losing to that deck? Or do I be like, okay, you know, Dredge is a hard matchup, so be it. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta be okay with not winning every game. What are some of the worst matchups for Blue Moon right now? Uh, I'd say still Etron, uh, strangely enough, because there's still people uh, playing that deck, even though Microsynth Lattice got banned. Uh, there's probably just a lot of people that enjoy the playstyle and still has some really powerful lines. Uh, any deck with Cavern of Souls, for the most part, with the exception of Amulet Titan, that matchup's pretty easy. Mm. Uh, Etron, uh, graveyard-based decks like uh, Dredge and Hogak. And maybe burn. 
maybe burn. It really depends on whether you have Archmage's Charm in your hand or not for that matchup, and a quick way to close out the game. Yeah. Because especially against the mono-red versions of burn, like the ones with Lava Darts and everything, Charm just stealing their prowess dudes after their, like, five sixes is just such a blowout. Yeah. And it's not too hard to win from that point going forward, but anything that sort of cheats creatures into play without using the stack or just has cavern of souls i would say is a difficult matchup humans maybe it it really depends on if you're able to interact with their ether vial or not you end up losing game one against humans for the most part but a lot of blue moon sideboards are constructed in such a way where they just are able to kill everything in games two and three like you bring in your anger of the gods your braids and they just can't win games two and three so you should be fine that's always so, been my experience with that specific matchup. Like, I love playing humans because it's so testing. Uh, it's so skill testing of a matchup because you have so many great tools. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of, like, sequencing things correctly, maybe mulliganing and sideboarding correctly. Exactly. They will likely steal game one because unless you somehow know your opponent is on humans beforehand, you might keep a hand that's like, oh, man, two lands, thing in the ice three remands or whatever (laughs) let's go and then they play cavern and you're like well yeah uh this hand might have got there against a lot of other decks but not this one so yeah you kind of are you got your back against the wall but you can do it you just gotta sequence well in games two and three and you should be good so cavern decks graveyard decks those are the worst matchups control decks it's a walk in the park Mid-range, as long as you sequence your Archmage's Charm Mystic Sanctuary loops correctly, you'll be okay. Uh, And, yeah. All right, so now I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I appreciate all of your insight and experience that you've shared about Blue Moon. I'm curious to hear how you feel about Pioneer. Because I can tell that you don't play a lot of it. No, I I tried. I really did. Uh, There were some really, really interesting decks in Pioneer. I thought the Izzet and Soul deck was really, really fun. Um, I played a couple of aggro decks, but I think the problem with Pioneer, and a big part of the reason I don't play it, is I really, really like interactive spells. And again, not trying to throw shade at Wizards of the Coast here, but I don't think it's a super controversial thing to say that they're just not interested in printing good interactive spells lately. Uh, You got like Fatal Push and Assassin's Trophy... And those are the only two really good interactive spells I can think of as of late. And the design philosophy has been let's print threats and let's make them cool and flashy and like really difficult to deal with. And that sort of design philosophy has made Pioneer a format that's really uninteresting to me. Because Mm -hmm. it just seems like all the games basically play out. I'm on the play. I stuck my threat. I stuck my combo. I win. Because outside of Black, where you have Fatal Push and Thoughtseize, there just aren't good tools to interact. The best counter spell in Pioneer is Sensor. Like, are you kidding me? Why? Well, what about I... Absorb? Absorb costs three mana. Like, <laughs> and the life gain isn't even relevant against decks like uh, Breach or Inverter. It's just, if you are the kind of player that enjoys counter wars or like, really interactive games of magic pioneer is just not appealing and Mm. i think it's something that's just baked into the bread of 
how the format's construction and recent um, changes in design philosophy. And if you enjoy magic like that, that's awesome. And I'm happy you can enjoy a format when I can't, but I just, I have to be able to interact with my opponent outside of the battlefield to really, really have fun playing magic. So I can't do it. I just can't. Why isn't uh, Pioneer Blue-White Control not interactive enough? Well, the thing of it is there are interactive spells in Blue-White Control, but I feel like outside of the black-based mid-range decks, like those are your only real options. And like I said before, a big part of the reason I enjoy playing Blue Moon is because you can actually close out the game quickly while interacting with your opponent. Mm-hmm. And I've played a Pioneer League with um, Blue-White Control, and it just, I was, I was doing well, but I was going to time every match. Like the games were an hour long and I yeah. was killing people with 1-1 tokens generated by Castle Ardenvale. And it's just like, I could be eating a sandwich right now. I could be like <laughs> doing stuff, but I'm just like waiting for my opponent to concede. And it was exhausting. Like, yeah, there are interactive spells, but... As somebody who's just played so much of Modern, I'm like, these interactive spells are not as efficient compared to the stuff I play in Modern. Mm-hmm. Like, the threats are all the same. I'm mm-hmm. still playing 3-mana Teferi. I'm still playing, like, Big Teferi. I'm still playing Narset. Like, the only real difference I feel between Blue-White Control and Pioneer and Blue-White Control and Modern is the interaction in Modern is better. So why wouldn't I just play a more powerful and fun deck? <laughs> like... That's the big thing I kept thinking is like, I was playing Pioneer Blue-White Control and I'm thinking, why wouldn't I just play this in Modern? And then the answer dawned on me. It's because Blue-White Control is actually good in Pioneer. <laughs> like, and that hurts to hear, <laughs> but it's the truth. Like, it is the stone-cold truth. Like... Well, yeah, it's, it's the four Supreme Verdict deck, right? Like, when everything is all about the board and the battlefield and you can just jam four Wraths, that sounds and, quite good. And isn't it fun that your best piece of interaction in Pioneer in the blue-white control deck is a uncounterable board wipe? How right. fun. How enjoyable. Well, you can like, still quell that spell. That's true, but then, then that's the thing. Then you're playing Spell Queller, which means you're either playing Spirits, where your only interaction is Spell Queller or Brazen Borrower, or you're playing the Blue-White Control Mirror, where your opponent's not playing Supreme Verdict anyway against you, because nobody's playing to the board. So, I don't know, man. Like, it's just not for me. (laughs) I get that. I haven't had the opportunity to play a ton of Pioneer either, because the LGS schedule here in Chicago for Pioneer is not very conducive to my personal schedule. Mm -hmm. And I find myself playing MTGO as an extension of what I'd be playing in paper. So I feel that way about the modern preliminaries. They're always at like two o'clock in the morning where I live. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I want to get better and play these preliminaries, but I also want to like work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you set MTG goals for yourself? Yeah, actually, it's it's funny you mentioned that because uh, playing more of the preliminaries and going to bigger events is something that I kind of have on the radar. Uh, the reoccurring joke I have with myself is I just never leave my house anymore to play Magic, even though I got, like, Blue Moon right next to me in paper form at the computer. 
And I just, I want to be able to play it at a paper event and like actually do well. And I'm pretty confident that I could do well at one of these events, but just the logistics of going out of your house and playing magic or the logistics of trying to do these um, modern challenges and these preliminaries when you have other stuff going on in your life. It's, it's a hassle, but it's something that I really, really want to do. I think the most realistic goal I have for myself is I want to get to number one on the leaderboard with mm-hmm. Blue Moon. That way people have to recognize that it's a contender. Yeah. 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 And the nice thing about the leagues is you can get to number one on the leaderboard in theory on your schedule. Yeah. That, and that's huge, right? Like leagues are how I play the majority of my magic these days just because they're so flexible. And the way that they're structured, uh, when you lose in a league, there's still hope. Whereas in something like Arena, when you lose, like trying to climb the ladder, you feel like you have to undo that loss with another victory, which just sort of creates these like weird psychological cycles in your head. Whereas if I lose in a league... It's not only like something I can do on my own time, but I'm like, okay, I can still 4-1 or I can still 3-2. Like, let's play some magic. Let's have some fun. So the last topic I would love to hear from you about is Jacob, the streamer. And I'm curious, what first got you into streaming? And, And also, how has it really impacted you as a magic player? I think the biggest thing that streaming did for me that was beneficial, it did two things, actually. First, it made me feel less alone in my endeavors regarding Blue Moon because it just opened me up to all these different members of the community and like other people that played the deck and were interested in it and how it worked. And it's so awesome to know that people care about this archetype other than me because before I started streaming, I kind of felt like I was the only person playing the deck, even though I knew that was not true. Uh, So just meeting all these great, wonderful people who are working really, really hard to find optimal builds and test new cards. Um, People like yourself, you're a regular um, on the stream, actually, and it's always nice having you in chat. Uh, And just meeting people like you has been incredible. Uh, From a technical gameplay perspective, I think the thing that streaming did that made me a better player was I actually talk through my decisions now. Yeah. And because I think, okay... I could play this spell, uh, but if I play this spell, there's X, Y, and Z consequences. And actually talking about that helps me make better plays. I feel like I do the worst when I'm streaming and I'm not talking out my decisions. But I feel like that's rare compared to how the streams normally go. I feel like I have to justify my play patterns. And if I can't justify them to myself or to my audience, then it's probably not ideal. Hmm. So being able to talk through the actual decision trees of a game of Magic is a really, really valuable thing to get in the habit of. I even do it when I'm not streaming now. (laughs) I'll be like talking to myself and be like, okay, if I do this, then this, this, and this might happen. And it's a good habit to get into, I feel. I almost find, you know, I I don't stream nearly as often as you do, maybe once every couple of months. But when I start trying to talk through my plays, it, it, A makes me slow down a lot and then like Mm -hmm. i'm trying to beat the clock in some games but also i find myself start to overthink what my options are and and i almost wonder whether you almost have to learn how to think through your plays in a public way that are maybe a little different than if it's just you and the game and you're not you know doing this almost performative endeavor while streaming 
I feel as if... How do I put this? I feel like overthinking is a definite risk when you talk through your plays like that. But I'm a pretty impatient person at the same time. So I feel like that impatience is bizarrely enough kind of a safeguard to prevent me from overthinking. Um, I... I can't say how it would be for other people, but I feel like I'm not patient enough to overthink, but I'm just patient enough to talk through my lines. You know what I mean? So, in regards to, like, it being performative or not, like, I'd say the only performative aspect is I'm trying to justify my plays to other people. So that I can see if it's correct to do that, you know? Yeah. Which seems like an asset. Because if I'm not able to prove that this uh, line has merit to other people or to myself, then it might not be optimal. But you gotta, of course, play quickly so that you're not timing out and whatever. What do you think it takes to be good at streaming? I think you have to have fun with what you're doing. I think you have to you have to view it as something where it's oh god how do I even phrase this you have to view it as something to look forward to mm-hmm. and like a fun gathering of people you care about like gain the crew together and going on an adventure it's all about how you view it if you think oh, I got to stream because it's like my job or I have to keep up my reputation or anything like that. I think it'll lead to burnout. Whereas if you think of it as something like, yeah, I'm going to stream tonight and it's going to be awesome. I got this really cool idea. I can't wait to bounce ideas off of people. Then it's way easier to not only stream more, but to also get better at it. I think another thing is you also have to be receptive to feedback. If you're doing something that you feel like isn't working and you know, might not be best for your audience or best for yourself. Like, run that by people. Be like, do you think I should do this more? Do you think I should do this less? And be receptive to hearing answers that you may not be okay with. So you got to be flexible and you got to actually enjoy what you're doing and look forward to it. And then I think the rest just comes naturally. I think because streaming is an inherently human experience, like you're interacting with other people, a lot of the other stuff that leads to success is just organic. You know what I mean? Like, if you're having fun, they're going to have fun. And if everybody's having fun, that will eventually lead to success. And what could be funner than playing rogue modern decks and working hard to try and make them succeed? Like, that grind is... It's an adventure, and we're all still on it. So that's really, really cool. And, I mean, I got to say, from a from a personal perspective... I think you're doing a great job, man. I, I love I love watching you stream in part because you play my favorite deck in modern uh, and just interacting and chatting with you. It's always a good time. So I think I think now's a good opportunity for you to actually plug your stream and, and plug your online presence. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I stream at Jacob Kamiski at twitchtv.com. I believe that's the correct address. And I also have a Twitter where I do all my updates on the innovations and the new builds of Blue Moon that I'm working on, and that's at Comiskey Jacob, so it's just my name but inverse. And if you're interested in following my streams at all or how Blue Moon as an archetype is progressing, that's the first place to go. There's also a Blue Moon Discord, which I can probably uh, throw a link your way at some point, and that's where just 
everybody congregates to throw new ideas at each other to come back with tournament results and data and figure out you know how to adapt to certain metas it takes us a little bit longer than some of the other decks but we got a bunch of really cool hard-working people over there at the discord and it's it's pretty fun i also have a youtube channel if you just um youtube search jacob comiskey i should be the first person to pop up it's just like me playing a bunch of different variations of blue moon that's that's essentially my stream archive or at least the streams i'm particularly proud of and i think that's about all that i got going i got the twitter the discord the twitch channel youtube yeah i think that's it and i will include links to all of that in the show notes so you'll be able to find jacob uh through this episode once it goes up thank you thank you for that before we wrap up is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you wanted to share anything on your mind heck maybe even questions for me the floor is now yours yeah i do actually have a question for you uh why do you enjoy playing blue moon what does that deck offer you in modern that uh other decks of a similar ilk don't provide like what's something that you really enjoy about it for me i know it's uh the flexibility of the spells and just having all these different decision trees that lead to big swingy plays but what do you like about blue moon the decisions are a big part of it because one of the things that I enjoy about the magic games that I look back on fondly is when I make choices that get me out of a sticky situation. Yes. And, you know, in contrast right now for the next episode of the podcast, um, we are testing a bunch of Heliod company decks, mm-hmm. which is, oh, my cat's here. You have a cat! I also have a cat, as I'm sure you know. (laughs) Yeah. Hi, buddy. Um, Heliot Company is is obviously a good and proven deck, but, Mm -hmm. you know, there are some games where you just don't have any lines to your combo, and there's just nothing you can do, and you get run over because you, like, you draw lands or the wrong creatures. Also, your interaction is like walking ballista, and that's it, from my understanding of the deck. It's your one walking ballista, and sometimes it's your most important win con. And if you crack it or it's answered, you're just like out of luck. <laughs> exactly. And and with Blue Moon, I feel like there's a lot of games where you lose that you could have won if you made good choices. Yes. Well, and, and I love that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, Counterspell is one of my all-time favorite cards. Snapcaster and Bolt are, are up there as well. And really, I got to say there's like different modes of play and different types of cards in magic. And without question, my absolute favorite way to play magic is at instant speed, ideally mm-hmm. on my opponent's turn. Oh yeah. That's what it's all about. My dude. It's so much fun. Totally. Whether it's, you know, answering uh, a threat that they play or flashing in like Brineborn cutthroat or Pestermite. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. like doing draw go and then doing everything right after they've done it. And then just kind of moving on from there. Exactly. Because when you play at instant speed, that is something that inherently creates more decision trees. Because your opponent might do something on their turn that completely changes the landscape of your game. And it's like you got a nice juicy little puzzle to solve. Yeah. Because of that addition. And that completely changes the context of the cards in your hand. So by playing at instant speed, you get to make even more decisions. It's awesome. And Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Blue Moon is the kind of deck where you lose a lot of games because you could have made different decisions. And dwelling on those decisions and really pining them over them 
after you're done playing the game is one of my favorite parts of Magic. Just combing over and being like, well, if I bottomed that card that I drew with Opt and took the riskier line, like, what were the chances of that line being advantageous to me winning the game? What if I remanded my own cantrip there instead of remanding my opponent's threat? Would that have been something to get me closer to the finish line? And just thinking about those, it's it's fun. It's it's like going to a fun movie and thinking about it in retrospect. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's I think part of it is also to do with how I got into modern. My very first modern deck ever was Storm. Mm-hmm. Um just as Baral Storm was emerging. Uh, and it was right after the Modern Masters that had the Fetchlands reprinted. Oh, okay, cool. So I got cheap Scalding Tarns as my first fetch, or you know, quote unquote, cheaper Scalding mm-hmm. Tarns was my first Fetchland. And like for a long time, I was just pretty stubborn about only playing decks that let me crack Scalding Tarns. So, dude, that resonates with me on an emotional level. I almost did the exact same thing. Yeah. Over time, I I bought more fetch lands and expanded my collection a little bit. But I always just go back to these Scalding Tarn, Bolt Snap, Bolt decks. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Storm is a puzzle I don't like solving. But if I get to counter spells uh, or just, like, bolt someone out when they least expect it or flip a 7-8, I just find that all, like, equally fun. How about when you got a Snapcaster Mage on the field when you flip that 7-8 and you just... <laughs> flooded with value it's like welcome to the circus of value yeah or having six mana and doing snap crypto command like <clears throat> you didn't think i could do that i love having a kindred spirit who's not only generous with the information and the games that they play but is also just a fun person to chat with so thank you knowledge belongs to everybody and if i'm gonna present that knowledge i might as well present it in an entertaining way and you do a great job. I hope some more people find your stream through this episode. That would be awesome. The more, the merrier. Well, that wraps up this week's bonus episode of The Dive Down. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes weekly or bonus as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or prick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer... You can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down, or you can sign up for mana traders with our exclusive coupon code. Sign up with coupon code the dive down, all one word, to get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And of course, a huge thanks to Jacob Kamiski, the pen sword, for spending this very lovely Saturday afternoon with me chatting about control. And until next week, get out there and bolt, snap, bolt! Oh, you're at six? How interesting. Bolt, snap, bolt, bolt, snap, bolt. (laughs)